Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. Before I begin today's tragic story, I wanted to let everyone know that I now have a YouTube channel, and I would love for you to head on over to YouTube and subscribe. I'm on YouTube as Mama Margot, so just search for me and subscribe. I'm in the process of putting some videos together for everyone, so I hope I'll see you there. One more thing, I need to give a huge shout out to a couple of patron twins, Courtney and Tiago Perez. Hey, hey! Your dad told me that you both are huge fans of the show, and I just wanted to say I love you and thank you for all your support. All right, everyone, on to the show. So, I chose today's case specifically for this week because it's a historic case that occurred 35 years ago around the holiday season. And sadly, it still holds a record for the most deaths by a family annihilator. Trigger warning for this particular episode, the case involves mass murder, the murder of children, and the sexual assault of the perpetrator's own daughter. Listener discretion is advised. Join me today as I tell you the story of retired Air Force Master Sergeant Ronald Gene Simmons. Now, let's dig in. My sources for this episode are various court opinions, the Encyclopedia of Arkansas website, and articles written in the Los Angeles Times, the New York Daily News, the Associated Press, CARC 4 News, UPI, the Fort Worth Star-Telegraph, Garnet News Service, Newsmember, and Dallas Morning News. Before I begin, let me just say that in preparing the initial draft of this script, I relied on the sources I just mentioned. After I was done writing, I read a book by Jim Moore titled Rampage. It was initially published in 1990 and then republished in November of 2022. What I did was I intertwined some information that I gathered from the book that I didn't find in other records. For example, Jean's military life has not been discussed in other sources, but the book contained a lot of information. So with that said, a huge shout out to the author of Rampage for republishing the book and allowing us to really take a peek behind the curtain and especially being able to dig so deep into the perpetrator's military record. Our case today begins in Russellville, Arkansas. On December 28, 1987, 47-year-old Air Force retiree Ronald Gene Simmons Sr., who I will call Gene, had a bone to pick. Gene was a man who seemed upset at the world. That morning, he got into his son's car, bound to take out anyone who he felt had harmed him. At 10.17 a.m., Gene entered the Peel, Eddie, and Gibbons law firm. There were seven people in the office, but Gene appeared to be looking for one particular person. When 24-year-old Kathy Kendrick, a law firm receptionist, asked Gene if he needed help, he pulled out a gun and shot Kathy in the head four times, killing her. Everyone inside the law office was terrified as Gene simply walked out of the building. Then Gene made his way to the Taylor Oil Company. At 10.26 a.m., 
Jean shot a man named Rusty Taylor. He shot him twice in the chest. Then, as Jean walked out of the oil company building, he shot Jim Chafin once through the eye. But after shooting three people, Jean was not done. He then made his way to the Sinclair Mini Mart. At 10.39 a.m., Jean shot two Mini Mart co-workers, 46-year-old Roberta Woolery and 38-year-old David Sawyer. Jean then went to the Woodline Motor Fright. At 10.42 a.m., just three minutes after shooting Roberta and David, Jean shot his former supervisor, 35-year-old Joyce Butts. He shot her in the head and chest. As reported by the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, after Jean shot Joyce, he went into the computer room where he found a woman named Vicky. Pointing the gun at Vicky, he instructed her to call the police. He then told Vicky in part, quote, I just wanted to kill Joyce, just Joyce. I didn't want to hurt anybody else. I've gotten everybody who wanted to hurt me, end quote. Jean held Vicky in the computer room until the chief of police showed up. Chief Herb Johnston spoke to Jean through the door. Chief Johnston tried to calm Jean down, saying, let's chat, give me the gun. Jean quickly gave himself up, but never said another word about the murders. When asked what his name was, the man replied, James Johnson. This was not his real name, though, but at least for a few minutes, it gave him anonymity. His real name was Ronald Gene Simmons. When Gene's personal belongings were inventoried at jail, he had some ammo, $49 in cash, and Sheila's social security card. And we'll talk about Sheila in a little bit. And when he was arrested, Gene's after Christmas terror ended. He had killed two people and injured four others. Or so they thought. While Jean sat in jail, investigators tried to piece together what happened. Why had a military retiree shot up all these separate locations? In addition to piecing the events of that morning together, police were trying to make contact with Jean's family. The family didn't have a house phone and Jean wasn't talking. So the police were able to obtain some of Jean's work records and they found an address for the house located in rural Pope County. One investigator was tasked with notifying Jean's wife. His name was Jim Hardy. Hardy arrived at the Simmons house, known as Mockingbird Hill. He arrived there at about 12.30 p.m., and as he pulled up to the property, he saw a bunch of cars. Hardy wasn't super sure he was at the correct house, so he called in some of the plates on the cars that were parked in front of the house. The 1980 Chevy Love pickup belonged to one Billy Simmons. The 77 Toyota belonged to Dennis McNulty, and a blue Chevrolet station wagon belonged to Ronald Simmons the man currently sitting in jail for his shooting spree. Bingo! Hardy knew he was at the right place. As Hardy stepped out of his vehicle, he noticed something. The place was eerily quiet. Hardy knocked and knocked and no answer. He called out, is anyone there? His spidey senses were going berserk at this point. He walked around the house and in addition to how quiet the place was, all the curtains and shades were drawn. And then he noticed a stick at the bottom of a sliding glass door indicative that it was locked. So, without doing anything else, Hardy got back in his car and went into town to consult with other investigators. Back at the station, Hardy and a few others barge into the chief's office and they tell them what Hardy found. Everyone is kind of freaking out as a light bulb goes off and they're like, wait, you think this fool killed his family too? Meanwhile, one of the officers who is sitting with Gene while Gene isn't saying anything, well, this officer mentions to Gene, hey, something about your family. And all of a sudden, Jean's eyes get all swollen with tears. 
This nonverbal reaction, in conjunction with what investigator Hardy found at the house, was enough for them to go to the prosecutor to tell them that they had to make entry into the Simmons home immediately. They didn't have time to wait around for a warrant. The prosecutor was like, yeah, that's enough. And with the green light, the officers rushed back to the house on Mockingbird Hill, arriving at about 2.30 p.m. They immediately canvassed the area, and it was exactly as it was two hours earlier. This time, one officer found one unlocked window. He opened it and peered inside. And honestly, no amount of training would prepare these first responders from what they were about to find. The two murders earlier that morning in Russellville, that was all just the beginning. In eyesight, the officer saw two bodies on the floor covered with something, a blanket or a jacket of sorts. He made entry, unlocked the front door and let the rest of the crew inside. They entered holding video recorders because they knew they needed to record the evidence. Inside the Mockingbird Hill house, it would take investigators two days to find the bodies of 14 people, both inside and outside of the residence. It took two days to uncover the bodies because of the sheer size of the property. So who were the 14 bodies? Had that many people been reported missing recently? Well, they were all Jean's family members. And remember, this discovery was taking place within days of Christmas, a holiday where families often get together to celebrate. This year, however, the victims had been summoned to their deaths. After the discovery of the Simmons family massacre, the LA Times reported that it was the worst mass murder of a family in U.S. history. And 35 years later, that still rings true today. Ronald Gene Simmons was born on July 15, 1940, in Chicago, Illinois, to Loretta Quinn and William Henry Simmons. Gene had an older brother, Robert, and a younger sister, Nancy. And then, when Gene was only two years old, his father died. Within a year of his father's death, Loretta married William D. Griffin, a civil engineer for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. The Corps made the family move to Little Rock, Arkansas, in 1946. Eventually, the family welcomed another son. His name was Peter. When Jean was 12 years old, his older brother joined the Navy, and that left Jean to act as the oldest son. But it turned out he would bully his little brother, which did not ring well with his parents, and they eventually sent him to boarding school. From a young age, Jean suffered from self-control issues and had violent outbursts. Eventually, on September 15, 1957, after dropping out of high school, Jean joined the U.S. Navy. His first assignment was in Guam, where he spent two years and loved it. Then he returned to the U.S. in the summer of 59, and that's where he met his first wife, Bursebi Ulibari. She went by her middle name, Rebecca, but she went by Becky. Becky was originally from Colorado, and she had quite a big family. After dating for about a year, they were married in July of 1960. He was 20, and Becky was 19 years old. Jean was then transferred with the Navy to New Mexico. Within three months of marriage, the couple was expecting their first child. When Becky's family first met Jean, they thought he was a fine young man. Becky's family told the LA Times, quote, he was like any other guy. I mean, you always think that a serviceman will make a good husband, end quote. But as time went by, there was something about Jean that Becky's family didn't like. They told the Mountain News that they didn't trust him because he got, quote, stranger each year, end quote. He became increasingly controlling and became physically and emotionally abusive. The family had even commented among each other that if anything ever happened to Becky, one of her sisters would raise her kids. 
Well, that would be a big ask because Jean and Becky went on to have seven kids in the first 18 years of marriage. Ronald Jean Jr., a.k.a. Little Jean, was born in 1961. Jean left the Navy in 62 because he didn't want to be separated from his family. Sheila Jean was born in 63. Two years after leaving the Navy, Jean joined the Air Force and the family welcomed their third child, William Henry, a.k.a. Billy. He was born in 65. Five years later, the couple welcomed Loretta in 1970. Three years later in 73 came Eddie. Three years after Eddie in 76 came Mary Ann. And three years later came their seventh and final child, Rebecca, a.k.a. Little Becky. She was born in 1979. This next part about Jean's Air Force career, I gathered from author Jim Moore's book, Rampage. Jean's first assignment in the Air Force was at Langley Air Force Base, where the family spent four years. While in Virginia, Becky's sister and brother-in-law were living nearby because her brother-in-law was in the Navy and also stationed in Virginia. The Simmons seemed to have a normal home life, but some things would later reveal itself to show how controlling Jean really was. For example, he didn't allow a phone at home. His wife didn't drive and he was fine with that. And he controlled all of the money, not letting Becky do much of anything except take care of the kids. In 1966, Jean went from a regular Air Force job to working for the Office of Special Investigations, also known as OSI. Oh, yes. When I first learned about this story, I had no clue that Jean was OSI at one point. Yes. And he did it for like a decade. Anyway. By this point, he's a staff sergeant, which is an Air Force E-5. And when he gets picked up for OSI, he volunteers for Vietnam and he spends a year there from 67 to 68. Then he's transferred to San Francisco. Then he makes his way to Travis Air Force Base. In 1970, the family welcomes their fourth child and it appears that the Simmons home life is kind of fine. But then the Air Force doesn't grant Gene's request for a family transfer to live in either D.C. or Athens, Greece. And this really turns Gene upside down. He is beside himself. How dare the Air Force not grant his request? So like a little big fat baby, and we all know people like this in the military, Gene bitches and moans and complains and tells the Air Force to remove him from the OSI career field. And they do. They transfer Gene to the Aerial Port Squadron. And almost as soon as Gene's chair is warm at APS, He decides he hates it and he really screwed up. He writes a letter begging to be returned to OSI, but in the meantime, he PCSs, aka transfers, to Alcombary Royal Air Base in England. Now, it should be noted that one of the things that Gene does throughout his military career is that whenever they are due for a move, he always picks a kind of remote area for his family to live. It's like he likes to keep them isolated from other people. While the family is stationed in England, the Simmons have their fifth child, Eddie. And outside looking in, things are great. At work in 1973, Gene is nominated at the wing level as non-commissioned officer of the year. And while he doesn't win at the wing level, he did win at the squadron level, which boasts his ego quite a bit. Behind the scenes, home life at the Simmons home sucks. He's physically and emotionally abusing his wife, and he's secretly becoming obsessed with his 10-year-old daughter, Sheila. By June of 1976, the family relocates to Cloudcroft, New Mexico. Here, Gene is working with the Space and Missile System Observatory, a.k.a. SAMSO. The sixth child is born later that year in December of 76, and by the time that 1979 rolls around, Becky is pregnant with their seventh and final child. 
Now, Gene was trying really hard to stay in the Air Force. He didn't want to retire. He liked the job and he liked the pay. But he also purchased a forever home in New Mexico. And the military was looking to relocate him. And he was not a happy camper. And with that being said, Gene decided that he would retire as a master sergeant in 1979. After Gene retired, Becky had their seventh kid. And during the delivery, the doctor suggested that she get her tubes tied because another baby could be deadly. Jean was furious at this suggestion, but Becky knew it was the right thing to do, and she did it. And it was at this point that Jean decided he was no longer attracted to his wife because of the simple idea that she could no longer bear any of his children. And with that hatred towards his wife, the lust he had felt for his daughter, well, he would convince himself that he was doing it for the greater good. There are conflicting reports on when the sexual abuse began. Some reports say it began when Sheila was 15, which means it would have started while he was still on active duty. Other reports say it started in 1980, which means he would have been out. Either way, it was wrong and it was illegal. Author Jim Moore, however, states that Gene reconciled the idea of the abuse as a duty for him as a father to prepare and protect his daughter as she became an adult. Sheila was in her senior year of high school in the fall of 1980. And by the holidays that year, she had become pregnant with her father's baby. So just as an FYI, as I was reading a lot of reports in this case, they called this an incestual relationship, right? Which is a relationship between two family members. However, I'm going to call it what it is in its rape and sexual assault. I will be using the language of sexual assault, but that's exactly what it is. Anyway, by the time that spring rolled around and Sheila was showing, meaning her baby bump, Author Jim Moore alleges that Gene told the family about the baby and how it was his. This clearly upset his wife, but even more upset was his eldest son, Little Gene. Little Gene confided in someone who told him that he needed to report that to the Department of Human Services. But it turned out he wasn't the only one who made a report. Sheila had confided in a friend at school who also reported it. DHS went to speak to Sheila when she was at school and she told them that, yes, her dad had been having sex with her. But sadly, when the case reporter showed up at the house, Gene would not allow Sheila to speak to the case reporter. And he barely said anything. Although it does appear that he was like, yeah, it is my baby and she'll be fine. Even though little Gene made the initial report, he refused to speak to authorities because his mom and sister didn't want him to stir up any trouble for the family. But the authorities were so desperate to get information from Sheila that they threatened her. They threatened Sheila. They threatened to hold her in contempt if she didn't testify at the grand jury hearing. And with that threat, Sheila reluctantly testified. In August of 1981, four months after the initial report, an indictment for three counts of incest were handed down against Gene Simmons. But when officers went to the Simmons house to arrest Gene Simmons Sr., the entire family was, poof, gone it appeared that Gene and his family had fled the state. With this information, the New Mexico authorities entered Gene's name into the FBI database and hoped that their fugitive would get in trouble. But sadly, that would not be the case, at least not initially. Within a year of the Simmons family being missing, the case against Gene in New Mexico was considered inactive, and it was placed in like a holding pattern. So if Gene ever reappeared, they would be able to prosecute. After fleeing New Mexico, Gene took his family and fled to a town called Ward in Arkansas. 
The summer they fled in June of 1981, Sheila gave birth to a little girl named Sylvia Gale. The Dallas Morning News reported that after the family arrived in Arkansas, the family turmoil went from bad to worse. The older kids were pissed off that their father was abusing their sister. In the meantime, Jean began working for the VA Medical Center in Little Rock. And then in January of 1982, Jean started working as a civilian for the Army Recruiting Office in Little Rock. Sometime that year, as the abuse continued, Sheila became pregnant by her father again. The thing was that Sheila was trying to better her life. She was taking college classes and she had met a man in college named Dennis who she really liked. For some reason, Jean, likely still fearful that New Mexico authorities would track him down, well, he made Sheila get an abortion. Jean worked with the Army Recruiter's Office until August of 1983. And then, likely trying to keep a low profile, he packed up his family in Ward and moved to Pleasant Grove, Arkansas. Pleasant Grove is a small town of 500 people, a place where everybody knows everybody. Now, I am not sure why reporting is the way that it is, but some reports say that Gene moved to Pleasant Grove. Some say it's called Dover. Some say Pope County. So it just, just know that it's a very rural area. Of note is that this is where the family was living at the time of the massacre. While Jean thought that by moving the family, he would be moving his daughter far away from that guy named Dennis that she met in college, Dennis kept up with Sheila and eventually, in the summer of 84, they got married. So let's put a little pin in this for now. When Jean moved to the Mockingbird Hill house, one of his first jobs was working as an accounts receivable clerk at Woodline Motor Fright in nearby Russellville. And this is where Jean Simmons and Kathy Kendrick's paths first crossed. You see, before Kathy worked at the law firm from the beginning of the story, she was working with Jean at the motor fright. But Jean gave off all the creepy vibes. Jean was a constant red flag of asking, begging Kathy to go out with him, but she always said no, telling him that she was happily married. According to court records, Simmons became a downright stalker. He wrote her notes, followed her around, and sometimes he even waited for her at her doorstep. Kathy tried to tell Jean to just go away, but he didn't listen. Eventually, Kathy reported Simmons to their boss, Joyce Butts. Joyce, the same Joyce from the beginning of this story, she confronted Jean and told him to cut it out. And well, as reported by J.B. Lewis from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, on November 19, 1986, it wasn't long after Joyce told Jean to stop harassing Kathy that Jean walked right up into her office and told her, quote, take this job and shove it, end quote. He then walked up to Kathy and said, quote, I hope you're satisfied, end quote. And then he left. I mean, yeah, I would be plenty satisfied if I didn't have to be harassed every day at work. But go on, angry Jean. Within four months of Jean quitting, Kathy left the motor fright and she went to work as a receptionist at the Peel, Eddie and Gibbons law firm. After basically quitting the motor fright gig, Jean went to work at, drumroll please, the Sinclair Mini Mart. Yep, the same Mini Mart from the beginning of this story. I wasn't able to find much information about Jean's time working there, but I think it's safe to assume that Jean had a bone to pick with someone at the Mini Mart. In the mid-80s, the Simmons family settled into their new lives in Arkansas. They lived on a 13-acre piece of land which would become known as the Mockingbird Hill. The Fort Worth Star-Telegram described the property as nestled at the foot of the Three Knob Mountains of northwestern Arkansas, 
about 85 miles northwest of Little Rock. The house was basically two homes combined to make one giant house, but it didn't have modern day amenities. No indoor plumbing, no heat, no air conditioning. There was a giant 10-foot privacy wall around some parts of the property and a giant no trespassing sign for all to see. And the family situation was terrible. The kids were forced to perform tons of manual labor. One of the Simmons neighbors told the Associated Press that Jean was a slave driver. As an example of the term, the neighbor said Jean required the kids to carry five-gallon buckets of dirt from the road to the house atop a steep hill. Another neighbor said that whenever she was walking by the house, Jean would shoo the kids away so that they couldn't speak to the neighbor. She found that behavior very odd. Jean controlled everything in the house. There was no house phone, so if anyone ever made a call using a payphone, Jean was always within earshot. He also personally screened the mail. He prohibited his wife and his daughters from wearing makeup because he didn't want them to look good. The kids did attend public school, but they had limited access to friends outside of school. According to Fort Worth Star-Telegram, sometimes the kids were allowed to have friends over. One friend recalled that Gene never spoke. He always had a beer in his hand, and he had this one small room where he kept to himself. No one ever dared go into that room, but the friend recalled that the room smelled real bad. Everyone in the small town knew there was something odd about the Simmons family. It was a very tight-knit community, but besides Gene, no one would ever see the rest of the family. Gene was very secretive. He would straight up walk away from people if they tried to talk to him. Becky, Gene's wife, was even more isolated than the kids. They at least got to go to school. Becky couldn't leave the house except to do laundry. She couldn't go shopping and she wasn't allowed to go to church. According to the New York Daily News, Becky despised her husband for years, long before he started abusing their oldest daughter. She called him fatso behind his back and she prayed daily because, quote, she didn't want to meet him in hell, end quote. Becky really wanted to leave Jean, but she never got the chance. So let's get to December of 1987. What were the Simmons family members up to? On December 18th, Jean Sr. just up and quit his job at the Sinclair Mini Mart after he worked there for 18 months. When his coworker asked him why he was quitting, Jean simply said, quote, I have just burned out, just tired of it, burned out. I've got the worst hours and the worst pay of anybody there. And my old car is not running all that good. And I wouldn't be able to make it down out of the mountains in the cold weather and things. And I'm just tired of it. I'm just not going to work for you anymore, end quote. The three eldest Simmons kids, little Jean, Sheila, and Billy, were all adults and they had all moved out of the Simmons house. They were all married with their own children. Reports indicate that growing up as they did, they lived their adult lives, quote, uncommonly shy and silent about their past, end quote. Which, do you blame them? The oldest son, little Jean, married a woman named Wilma, and they had a daughter named Barbara Jean. Three years into their marriage, in May of 1987, the couple divorced. But despite the divorce, by December of that year, little Jean and Wilma were trying to work it out. And in the meantime, their daughter, Barbara Jean, was living with her grandparents, Becky and Jean Sr. She was the youngest Simmons family member living at Mockingbird Hill. Little Jean was living in Texas, working as a fast food services manager at Fort Sam Houston. After leaving her house, Sheila finally realized that her upbringing was not normal. It's not normal for your father to sexually abuse you. When she met her future husband, Dennis Raymond McNulty, she told him the truth about her daughter, Sylvia, and he nonetheless loved her the same. 
Dennis even went as far as to adopt Sylvia as his own. The couple did have another child, a son named Michael James. At the time of this story, Sheila was working at a manufacturing plant. And it should be noted that her relationship with her parents was not great after she left the home. Who would want to return to a home like that? And it turns out that earlier that year, in August of 87, when Sheila, Dennis, and the kids stopped by the Mockingbird Hill house, Gene was not a happy camper. He straight up told Dennis that he was not welcomed at his house. They were about to get into it when Ronald grabbed a gun and started shooting at targets near his son-in-law. This type of behavior was insane. So Sheila and Dennis grabbed their kids, they packed it up, and they got the hell out of Dodge. I cannot imagine that they'd ever want to return to that house again. All right, let's talk about Billy Simmons. After Billy left the house, he married Renata May, and they had a son together that they called Trey. From everything that I read, it appeared that Billy and his mother Becky were pretty close. So let's talk about the young kids. In December of 87, the Simmons still had four underage kids living at home. Loretta was 17 years old and she was a senior at Dover High School. She was an honor student and she was really into writing poetry. She was really looking forward to attending college the following year because she hated her home life so much. The summer before the family massacre, Loretta managed to smuggle some letters to a friend where she basically confided in hating her life. She said she'd rather be dead. She said her father hated her and her mother was difficult to talk to. According to one of Loretta's friends, Loretta had zero respect for her dad and she would often insult him to his face and openly defy him. Because the other kids were so young, there isn't a lot of information about the youngest three Simmons kids. Eddie was 14, Madeline was 11, she had just turned 11 in December, and little Becky was eight. That December, Becky, the mom, she wrote a very long letter to Billy, her favorite kid. I'm going to call him her favorite kid because I think he is. And she wrote the letter to Billy, his wife, and their baby, Trey. The letter is lengthy, but it's important to read it because it gives you a glimpse into Becky's state of mind at the time. Dear Bill, Renata, and Trey, Loretta may be staying in town Friday night, so I'll have her mail this. I've been thinking of all you said, Bill, and I know you're right. I don't want to live the rest of my life with dad but I'm still trying to figure out how to start. What if I couldn't find a job for some time? You have to remember, I've never had a job since I've been married or before that neither. Now I have to start somewhere. It would all be so much easier if it was just me, but I have three kids also by then. So if you want to do any checking by telephone, go ahead and check and we can talk about it when you come. I've decided if I borrow from mom that I would have her send it to you. I'm still all very confused, but like I said, I do know I don't want to stay with dad, but don't want him getting more than he deserves. Yet sometimes I feel God is telling me to be more patient. Right now, I'll just say do some checking and then it will help make my decision. I would like for Loretta to move with you after she turns 18. She wants to go to college and she can get a job too. I don't think San Antonio is a place for her. Little Jean and Wilma are back together, but they want to try it out and try to come get Barbara. I'm sure enjoying Barbara. She is a sweet, lovable, polite little girl. She is a good little girl and we all love her and enjoy her so much. She always has us laughing. I'm so proud of Trey. The last time you came, dad wanted to know how come you didn't stay long enough to see him too. Now that little Jean and Wilma are back together, I wish they could move from San Antonio. Barbara needs both of her parents. They both have been through so much. I hope it works out. I love them both. Wilma wrote me a letter telling me she loves little Jean very much and she must because she went back to him and I'm sure she has been hurt deeply. 
I want to see all my children happy. I've remembered a lot of what you said, Bill. I am a prisoner here and the kids too. I know when I get out, I might need help. Dad has had me like a prisoner that their freedom might be hard for me to take. Yet I know it would be great. Having my children visit me anytime, having a telephone, going shopping if I want, going to church. Every time I think of freedom, I want out as soon as possible. I don't want to put any burden on my children and I think it's best I get out before I get too old. I want out, but it's the beginning. Once I get a job in place, then I can handle it. With the mental support of my children, I can do it. It was hard to talk in front of little Gene. He has been having it so hard and his problems were deeply in my mind. I felt sorry for him. I was so afraid what he might go back and do. You're lucky, Bill. You have a very good wife. She has led you the right way. And that is toward God. She is very pretty too. I've always thanked God for sending you a good wife. I'm thankful for Dennis too. Giving my darling Trey a lot of hugs and kisses for me. I love you all very much. Barbara gets bored if I take too long to write, so I hope I made sense in this letter. Hope Loretta can mail this Friday or Saturday on her way home. Love you very much, Mom. P.S. You all looked so nice when you came. Loretta had a great time with Renata. She talked a lot about it. End quote. What investigators found when they walked into the Simmons household after his arrest is what nightmares are made of. The first five bodies police found upon entering the Simmons home were inside the residence. The Dallas Morning News reported that the bodies were surrounded by more than 90 spent rounds of ammunition. The bodies had been carefully covered with items such as sheets, blankets, or coats. Inside the crime scene, the investigators found the following. 34-year-old Dennis McNulty, Jean's son-in-law, was shot once in the face. He was still wearing his coat and had a child's coat in his hand. 24-year-old Sheila, Dennis's wife and Jean's second oldest, was laying near the window where authorities made entry into the home. She had been shot in the face six times and her arms had been posed. 22-year-old Billy, Jean's third oldest, was shot twice in the head. He was still wearing his coat. Billy's 21-year-old wife, Renata, had been shot nearly seven times. And when authorities entered one of the smallest bedrooms, they found six-year-old Sylvia. She was lying face down on the bed and she had been strangled. You might recall that little Sylvia was both Jean's daughter and granddaughter. It took detectives quite some time to canvass the inside of the home. But by 7 p.m., the five bodies had been removed. They had taken as much evidence as they could and they called it a day and left. Of course, by the time that the officers left, the media was all over the murder spree. So there was always an officer on post at the house to ensure that no one disturbed the crime scene. Back at the police station that night, authorities knew there were missing Simmons family members. But where could they be? They called around and as news spread across the nation, they began to receive phone calls from Becky's concerned family members. One of Becky's sisters, Viola O'Shields, she called the police station and she was freaking the hell out. She shared with authorities that six months earlier when she visited the property, she remembered seeing a giant grave-like hole in the ground on the property. Viola made a big stink about the hole because she was concerned that one of the kids could fall in and get hurt. Viola had a bad feeling and she begged authorities to go back to the house and check, check around the outside of the house. The following day, authorities made their way back to the house and they began to search for the hole that Viola had mentioned to them and they found it. But it was no longer a hole. It had been filled in. And when they looked at it, it looked undisturbed. 
But the officers continued to search, and by 8.30 in the morning, they happened upon a part of the ground that appeared disturbed. The disturbed earth had been covered in corrugated metal and smelled like kerosene. Author Jim Moore reported that when investigators began to dig, about 10 inches below the surface, they hit barbed wire. Yes, barbed wire. Because of the barbed wire, the digging would take more time than expected. But once they removed the obstacle, it didn't take them long to find the first body. It was 9.12 a.m. on December 29th, and the first body was little Becky. She was eight years old, and in her mouth, they discovered gum. She had been chewing gum before she was strangled. Marianne's body was beneath little Becky. Marianne had just turned 11 years old two weeks prior. Beneath Marianne was 17-year-old Loretta. She was wearing a t-shirt that said, Jesus loves you. She had been strangled with a nylon cord and she still had the cord around her neck. 14-year-old Eddie was next and he was also strangled. Three-year-old Barbara was next and she was strangled with fish stringer. Little Jean, Barbara's father and Jean's oldest son was next. He had been shot four times in the face and he had been struck in the back of the head with a blunt force object. Surprisingly, he was only wearing his underpants and socks. And at the very bottom of the grave was Becky, Jean's wife. She had been shot twice in the face. Seven. Seven. That's how many bodies they discovered in this grave. The thing about this grave is that it had been dug a few months earlier, and it had been dug by the Simmons' young kids. Jean claimed that the hole was intended to be used as a family outhouse. While authorities were in the middle of unearthing the bodies in the grave, authorities happened upon two abandoned cars on the property. One was a 1970 Chevrolet Nova, and the other was a Chevrolet Caprice with a black vinyl top. Authorities searched the cars, and when they opened the trunks, they found two more bodies. It was Jean's youngest family members. His two grandsons born only a month apart. It was 20-month-old Michael and 20-month-old Trey. The toddlers had been strangled, soaked in water, and then put into green trash bags and placed separately in the trunk of these cars. That brought the total body count for that day to nine. Add the five family members and the two Russellville victims, the body count was 14 family members and two local citizens, 16 total. During the search of the property, police seized two pistols, a crowbar, two hammers, and several small ropes that they believe may have been used to shoot, bludgeon, or even strangle the victims. After Gene Sr. annihilated his entire family, including his wife, his eight kids, his son-in-law, one of his daughters-in-law, and his three grandkids, Gene took two handguns and headed into town. On December 28th, when Jean walked into the law firm, there was a woman named Brenda seated in the waiting room. She recalled that when Jean first walked in, Kathy was in a different office. And when she walked out, she walked right up to the guy and asked him if he needed help. Brenda said it didn't appear that Kathy recognized the man. And that's when, without saying a word, Jean revealed his weapon and shot Kathy four times in the head, never saying a word. And then he walked out of the office. Jean's next stop was a Taylor Oil Company. It was there that he shot Rusty twice in the chest. Rusty, it turned out, was the owner of the Sinclair Mini Mart, the last place that Gene worked at before committing the massacre. Rusty 
thankfully survived the attack. However, James David Schaffen, who went by Jim, was not so lucky. 34-year-old Jim was a fireman and a part-time truck driver for Taylor Oil. At 7 a.m. that morning, Jim had gotten off of his 24-hour firehouse shift. At 9.07 a.m., Jim went back to the firehouse after an alarm went off. He wanted to be there for standby just in case. Well, after about an hour, he left the firehouse for his shift at Taylor Oil, and he was just walking in the front door when Gene was leaving, and that's when Gene shot Jim right through the eye. Sadly, Jim did not survive the attack. Jim was remembered as a very nice man who loved to talk about his kids and his horses. After the shooting, a firehouse was named after Jim in his memory. After shooting Jim, Gene encountered Julie, a bookkeeper who had just started working at Taylor Oil that day. As she heard the first gunshots, she exited the bathroom and that's when she saw Jim get shot point blank. Gene saw Julie and wearing his cowboy hat pulled down to his eyebrows, he shot towards Julie, but Julie ducked and hid behind some crates. Julie later stated that the bullet was so close to her head that she could feel the heat from the bullet in her hair. After Taylor Oil, Gene headed to the Sinclair Mini Mart. There, he walked in and he first shot at the woman at the counter, 46-year-old Roberta. She was hit with a bullet to the mouth and one grazed her shoulder. The new store owner, David, was not sure if this was real life or some kind of joke, but he wasn't going to sit around and wait. So he grabbed a chair and charged at Gene. But Gene pulled the trigger, hitting the chair, causing the bullet to ricochet off the chair and hit David in the head. Both Minimart victims did survive. After the Minimart, Gene went to the Woodline Motor Fright, and this is where his former supervisor, Joyce, worked. At the Motor Fright, he shot 35-year-old Joyce in the head and chest. Miraculously, after open-heart surgery, Joyce survived. And the most amazing thing happened after her recovery. She has no recollection of the shooting. It's so interesting that after shooting Joyce, he forced Vicky to call the police and then told her he only wanted to kill Joyce. What? Are you serious? Before that, he had shot at close to 20 people. In retrospect, it is so sad to see that Gene annihilated his entire family. And then he went to all his previous places of employment to take care of the ones he felt harmed him. Yet in the end, the common denominator was Ronald Gene Simmons himself. For the murder of 16 people and the attempted murder of four others, Gene would face two separate trials. It should be noted that Gene never said anything about the murders. On December 29, 1987, Gene was charged with the murders of Kathy Kendrick and Jim Schaffin. He was also charged with the attempted murders of Rusty, Roberta, David, and Joyce. Gene pled not guilty. It should be noted that at the time of these charges, authorities had not yet discovered all of the bodies on Gene's property. Not long after the arrest and arraignment, Gene was secretly transferred to the hospital for a psych evaluation. They did so secretly because of all the death threats the chief of police had received against Gene. Eventually, Gene was found of sound mind and he was found competent to stand trial. After the discovery of all the evidence back at the Simmons residence, in January of 1988, Gene was charged with the murders of his 14 relatives. He pled not guilty. In May of 1988, Gene's first trial for the murders of Kathy and Jim took place. The initial venue was moved due to the amount of pretrial publicity the case had received. At trial, the prosecutor contended that Gene murdered Kathy because she spurned his advances. Jim was killed because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. The defense did not present any evidence. However, in arguments, they contended there was no proof that Gene was the killer. 
because the murder weapons were clear of his fingerprints. The jury just scoffed, and after deliberating for just one hour, they found him guilty of murder. Four days later, Gene was sentenced to death, plus 47 years. And then, after the sentence, the public heard from Gene for the first time since the murders. He took the stand and made the following statement. Quote, It is my wish and my desire that absolutely no action by anybody be taken to appeal or in any way change this sentence. It is further respectfully requested that this sentence be carried out expeditiously. I want no action that will delay, deny, defer, or denounce this very correct and proper death sentence. My attorneys have repeatedly counseled me to appeal. However, that is not what I want. I believe now and always have in the death penalty. To those who oppose the death penalty, I say in my particular case, anything short of death would be cruel and unusual punishment. I am of sound mind and body and have been seen by psychoanalysts who can verify that I am capable of making a clear and rational decision. I have given clear and careful thought and consideration, so there is nothing that will cause me to change my mind. I only ask for what I deserve. Let the torture and suffering end. Please allow me the right to be at peace. End quote. In February of 1989, 14 months after he annihilated his family, Gene's trial began in Johnson County. A change of venue also occurred, and it did not take place in the same location as his first trial a few months earlier. At the trial, the prosecution contended that the gun used to kill Kathy and Jim was the same gun that Gene used to kill many of his family members. Because prosecutors didn't have a definitive date of the family murders, they contended that the murders happened before Christmas Day. They believed the murders occurred on December 22, 1987, which coincided with the last day of school before winter break. The prosecutor believed that Gene methodically went through his home and killed his wife, Becky, his oldest son, Little Gene, and Little Gene's daughter. Little Gene had been in town for the holiday. After Gene killed those three family members, he placed them in the shallow grave outside, and then he sat and waited for his four school-aged children to return home from school on the bus later that day. After getting off the bus, he then killed Loretta, Eddie, Marianne, and Little Becky and placed them in the grave outside. The prosecutors then contended that after he disposed of the seven bodies, he hung out at his house waiting for the rest of his family to arrive for the holidays, which likely occurred on December 26. On that day, Billy arrived at the home with his wife, Renata, and their child, Trey, and Jean murdered all three of them. Later that day, when Sheila arrived with her husband, Dennis, and their two kids, Michael and Sylvia, Jean shot and killed Dennis and Sheila. He then strangled the kids. He placed the two young kids in the trunks of the abandoned cars and left the other five inside the home covered up. And then that same day, Gene took a leisurely trip out to Russellville. There, he stopped at Sears and picked up Christmas gifts that hadn't arrived in time for Christmas. That night, according to the Encyclopedia of Arkansas, Gene drove to a private club in Russellville. Then he returned home and stayed there for the weekend just hanging out inside the home with his five family members just laying on the floor or in the bed. On Monday, December 28th, Gene checked on all his deceased family members. He then walked around the house, locking every door and window, drawing all the blinds and curtains, and he snuck out of a window. When he got outside, he saw all the cars in his driveway and he decided to take his oldest son's car to commit his killing spree. It was a Toyota Corolla, but before getting in, He changed the license plate out to misguide police if he got pulled over. 
On his way to Russellville, he stopped by the post office to drop off three letters. Two letters were for his nieces, and I don't know what they said. But the third letter was for his mother-in-law. Her name was May Novak, and she lived in Colorado. The note to his mother-in-law read, quote, Dear Ma, sometimes you reap many more times what you sow. You have given so much to this family. This is just a little token of our appreciation. Keep it in remembrance of us. Love, Jean, and family, end quote. Inside the envelope was $260 in cash. After the post office, Jean headed to the law firm where Kathy worked. The prosecution believed that Jean's primary target for the mass murder of his family, or should we call it the annihilation of his family, was to kill Sheila and her husband, Dennis. It was evident that Jean was obsessed with his oldest daughter. And now that she was out of the home, married and raising her two kids, Jean hated it. Prosecutors theorized that this was his motive after reading a letter that Jean wrote. Jean went as far as keeping this five-page letter in a safe deposit box in a bank. The letter read in part, If you're trying to hurt me, then you should be very proud of yourself because you have done a very good job of it. You have destroyed me. I do not want D, referring to Dennis, to set foot on my property. He turned you against me. You want me out of your life? I will be out of your life. I will see you in hell, end quote. I have read the entire letter and it is insane what he says and how he flip-flops, but it shows his love-hate relationship towards his daughter. I will release the entire letter in my Patreon for those of you who are interested. When the prosecutor first introduced his letter, Jean's defense objected to the admissibility of the letter. But once the judge ruled that it was admissible, Jean attacked the prosecutor in open court. And by attacked, I mean Jean punched him in the face and then he tried to disarm a deputy. Jean was swiftly taken out of the courtroom and the prosecutor, turns out, was uninjured, stating in public, quote, it was a very light blow, end quote, which is mildly hilarious that the prosecutor said that. While reading the book Rampage, I learned that before Jean ever attacked the prosecutor, he told a reporter weeks in advance to watch him closely in court because he had something up his sleeve. After the courtroom fiasco, I imagine that Jean was warned to be on his best behavior and he returned to the courtroom, but he was all chained up. Jean's defense attorney argued at this trial that there was no proof that Jean killed his entire family. The defense instead relied on the alternative suspect theory. They said the real killer was Dennis, Sheila's husband. They said he killed everyone in a rage. Jean escaped death because he wasn't home. But after killing everyone, Dennis then killed himself. It was an outrageous defense, but they said what they said and they were sticking to it. It didn't matter, though, because on February 10th, 1989, after deliberating for four hours, the jury convicted Jean on all counts. Later that same day, Jean was sentenced to death. He waived all appeals and his execution was scheduled for March 16, 1989. On March 1st, there was an evidentiary hearing to determine if Jean was competent to waive the automatic appeals that come with a death sentence. The judge ruled that he was competent and his desire was granted. Now, this next part is about the death penalty and appeals. And for this part, we're going backwards to immediately after the first death sentence was handed down. After Gene was sentenced to death after his first trial, a few inmates didn't want the precedent that Gene was setting. So Reverend Louis J. Franz, a Catholic priest who counseled inmates at the Arkansas Department of Correction, he petitioned the Arkansas Supreme Court to allow him to proceed in court on behalf of Gene as next friend basically in his place. 
Long story short, Franz wanted to appeal Jean's sentence on his behalf since Jean didn't want to appeal himself. Franz was also asking for a stay of execution as that March execution date fast approached. On June 20th, the court granted a stay of execution and asked for more information. However, after oral arguments, the court ruled that Reverend Franz did not meet the qualifications for an exakin and could not take Jean's place in court. The stay of execution was canceled, and the court reminded everyone that Jean didn't want to appeal his sentence. He said so loud and clear. Three days after this, a death row inmate by the name of Jones Whitmore attempted to intervene in court as Jean's next friend, but the court was like, denied. On March 10th, 1989, Gene filed a petition requesting expedited review of his waiver of direct appeal. He basically was like, hello, can we get this party going? The Arkansas Supreme Court reviewed the file and they sided with Gene. He was competent and his decision was intelligent and knowing. One of the filings is quoted as saying, quote, in a psychiatric interview, Gene stated that he would consider it, quote, a terrible miscarriage of justice for a person to kill people and not be executed, end quote. The court further opined that there was no meaningful evidence that he was suffering from a mental disease, disorder, or defect that substantially affected his capacity to make an intelligent decision, end quote. On May 31st, 1990, Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton, yes, that Bill Clinton, signed an execution warrant for June 25th, 1990. Gene had his last meal a year prior when his execution had been postponed. This time, there would be no more delays. And on that day, June 25, 1990, at Cummins Prison, 49-year-old Gene Simmons had his last meal, which consisted of a well-done filet, a raw onion, a sliced tomato, cheese, a dinner roll, a banana, and a 7-Up. Then, as he lay in the chamber, Gene spoke his final words, quote, Justice delay finally be done is justifiable homicide, end quote. Then he was given a lethal injection. After his death, no one claimed his remains. He was buried in a pauper's plot in Lincoln Memorial Lawn in Varner. 22 years after Gene's execution, one of his defense attorneys gave an interview to Lauren Traker from Cark 4 News. The attorney, John Harris, told the news outlet that Gene confided in him and Gene was infatuated with Sheila. He admitted to fathering little Sylvia. He told his attorney that by 1987, when he committed the murders, he felt like his family was slipping away. The attorney said, quote, I think he felt like they're going to take him out. He's going to take them out first. I think that was his mindset, end quote. Gene's defense attorney shared with the outlet that the 16 murders committed at the hands of Gene are not only his fault. The attorney said that the New Mexico police are partially to blame for not vigorously hunting Gene down for the incest charges in their state. Of course, Kark 4 News hunted down someone in the police department in New Mexico and they admitted that after Gene's killing spree, they have strengthened their interstate communications and they talk more freely about the warning signs of abuse. Now, the author of the book Rampage actually believes that Gene never confided in his attorneys. So they're just making up all this Gene told me stuff. But anyway, I just wanted to put that in there just in case you pick up the book. This case is truly a tragic story that began inside a home. It began as a sexual assault of his own underage daughter and a world who turned a blind eye. Sadly, this is the case in many homes. Before I leave you today, I want to leave you with a poem. It's a poem written by one of Jean's victims. 17-year-old Loretta seemed to be full of life, despite living such a depressing home life. She had but a few months to go before graduating from high school. She wrote this poem on school paper. 
It's titled The Death of a Flower. Quote, A flower among the many seeds, each day another blooms, stronger and greater than the one before, till finally it's at its best. Slowly and sometimes painfully, the petals begin to droop, and the color and life quickly vanish, till all that is left is the stem. Like memories, reminding ourselves of what was then and what is now. So soon we feel the loss, and then the sadness sets in, of what once was so strong, so sweet and beautiful, and the knowledge of what was with us is no longer there." End quote. Thank you so much, Trigram Army, for listening another week. As we get ready to shut down this year, please be kind. Remember that the holiday season is happy for some, but sad for others, especially for those who have lost a loved one. Check on your family and friends. If you're interested in watching true crime videos in the future, be sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel at Mama Margot. Military Murder was created by Mama Margot Productions. This episode was researched in collaboration with Haley Gray Research, produced in collaboration with my bootcamp and higher fan club members. Executive produced by Jen, Tina, Alicia, Falcon 13, and Nicole. This month's newest associate producers are Tessa, Marco, JG, and Kimberly BB. This month's newest assistant producers are Angela, Martha, Lacey, Santos, Tiago, and Courtney Perez, and Sunsa Ray. The theme music was created by Tie Ups. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week, and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next time. Mama's working on her podcast. I don't want to.